listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So in chapter 11, this is how I would break up this chapter. I would take the first 10 verses and I would title this the believing um, minority. We'll talk about that. And right in the middle, 11 through 24, is the rejection of the Jews. And I've put the word temporary. We're going to talk about that a little bit. We will stop at 24, verse 24. The next week we will close up this section talking about the future of Israel. So I'd begin by thinking about the idea of, I don't know how often you think about Israel. So in our context, Israel is this little bitty country in the Middle East. It is about the size of New Jersey. That is how small this little country is. But we often hear about Israel, especially in the news, in reference to like Egypt and Syria and Iraq, this small country in this very unstable land at times. In fact, in the Bible, you hear it for the very first time in Genesis 32, where a man named Jacob wrestles with an angel. His name is changed to Israel. Then he has 12 sons that become the tribes of Israel. In fact, you read about Israel all through the Bible. So one of the questions we must face as Christians, I think, does concern the nation of Israel. And listen, there is a lot of debate on this. Clint and I, man, we have talked about this all different ways. Even Steve Hudson walked in to torment us as he does each week. And he even got roped in on it. Because there are some of these views, and here's one of them. One of the views is this, is that God sees the world in two groups. There's Israel, there's everybody else, the Gentiles. And God is dealing with them differently. He had a plan for the Jews, he has a plan for the Gentiles. And they kind of run parallel to each other. And if you're a theology nerd, uh, very loosely explained is the view that they often call the dispensational view. Doesn't mean much right now, but I just want you to know there's a view out there and that's what they look at. On the other end of the spectrum is a view that says, no, when we get to the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, the church then encompasses or takes over, replaces Israel, and they then inherit all the promises and blessings that was Israel, now it's the church as one group, and that's called the covenantal view. Well, as good theologians, some then try to meet in the middle. And so there's also a view that says this, there's only one way to salvation, and it's only through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, but Israel... In the end, believing Jews will hold a unique or special place in the end times and in eternity. And so they tried to make a hybrid of these two views. But especially next week, we're going to be dealing with how do we look at, how do we uh, notice the nation of Israel? What is God doing? Does he have a plan? Is that plan fulfilled? Is there more to come? But let's look at Paul's question for today in verse 1. It's called the believing minority. It says, I asked, has God rejected his people? So that is the question that Paul is going to answer today is, has God rejected his people? We see their rejection of him. But because of that, has God now turned his back on Israel? But remember, in this church, there are two defining groups. One group are Jews that came to faith in Jesus Christ, but they still have this very strong, 
uh, bond to tradition and the customs of being Jewish. And you wouldn't just do away with that overnight. It is built into them. Well, then the other group is the Gentiles, those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And they have come out of a very pagan background. And it's a miracle these two groups are even associating together. And this is a question everyone would be wondering, especially if you are a Jew that has been believed or believed in Jesus Christ. But for me, here's the hard part. Here I live in Western civilization in America, very far removed from the customs or traditions of the Jews, very far removed from the churches in Rome and even Israel. Now think about it. Lord, of all the problems I have, is this something I even need to be worried about? I mean, I've got problems in my marriage at times, my parenting struggles, troubles in job, finances, moral issues, political strife. I mean, of all the problems, is this really something that is relevant to our day and time? In fact, I would mean, take a show of hand. I mean, how many of us really even know a, a true Jew? Probably very low. Well, hopefully today we will see at the end, how is this at all relevant for us today? But first, let's look at it in its context and notice Paul's answer. Absolutely not, he says, and he's going to give us four reasons. And notice at the end of verse 1 where he starts. For I myself, he says, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he said, here's the reason Reason one, why God has not rejected the Jews, turned his back on them. All you have to do is look to me. He's exhibit number one. He said, I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm an Israelite from Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. And he's wanting them to look at himself. Because he wants them to realize that he was the greatest enemy of Christ in his church. He was public enemy number one. In fact, Paul set out to destroy the Messiah's message. And humanly speaking, Paul was the one person who came the closest in history of Christianity to extinguish the church. So Paul is saying, if anyone should be rejected by God, if anyone should have God turn their back on them, if anyone is not a candidate of salvation, it's really me. But God intervened in my life. He showed up. He knocked me off a donkey. He blinded me for a period of time. And then he called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So he says, God has not rejected his people. Because he would have had rejected me. And he did exactly the opposite. Well, then he gives reason number two. In verse two, he begins saying, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And that takes us back to Romans 9, where Paul says God is working his plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity future, and nothing will stand in the way of his plan. That God cannot reject those he foreknew. It's impossible. And then reason number three. Paul's going to take us back to dramatic scenes of all of the Old Testament. Look at the end of verse 2 to 3. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. So in your Bibles, you need to mark 1 Kings chapter 17 verses 19. And so let me quick kind of give us a refresher of what was going on. 
Israel, because of the rebellion, because they are killing God's prophets, they've torn down the altars, they're refusing to worship, they're following after other gods, God calls upon a drought in the land. Elijah is the prophet among the people. So the drought is happening because everybody there, they're turning from Yahweh, they're worshiping and sacrificing to the Canaanite god Baal. And God has Elijah call a curse on the land, and they receive no rain for three and a half years. Well, the time comes, and Elijah calls for a showdown. He says, we're going to have a, a, a God battle here. Calls for all Israel to gather together in the 850 prophets of Baal. He says, build an altar to your God, make a sacrifice, and then call upon Baal to burn up, to consume this sacrifice. So they build an altar, put the sacrifice on, they begin calling out to Baal early in the morning. This goes on for hours. Finally, Elijah says, uh, what is wrong with your God? He says, why don't you try calling out a little louder? So they do. They begin wailing. They even begin cutting themselves, trying to do everything they can to get Baal's attention. And this goes on for hours. And then I love this part. Elijah steps up to the front and he tells them, well, maybe Baal, maybe your God is busy. And you can look this up. It says, maybe he's actually on the toilet. It says, relieving himself. Or maybe he's on a trip or, hey, just maybe he's sleeping and he can't be disturbed now. Not making that up. You can read it there. So they begin screaming louder and louder and Baal never answers. So Elijah goes to one of those altars they've torn down. He rebuilds it. He takes 12 stones, one for each tribe. He gets the sacrifice ready, but then he does something else. He digs a trench around this altar. They had water would be carried in these huge vases, jars. and He had four of those filled to the brim, poured over the altar, and he has them do that four times. It's where the sacrifice is wet, the wood is wet. It even fills in the trench. Then Elijah prayed to God one time, it says God sent that fire that consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It even burned the stones and the dirt the altar sat on. And it drank up all the water in the trench. And then Elijah has all the prophets of Baal killed. Well, this doesn't sit well with King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. So they put a bounty out on Elijah's head and Elijah does what any sane person would do. He runs and hides. Even after seeing all that his God had done, he runs and hides and he finds himself alone in a cave. And Elijah feels like he is the only one in the land that is trusting and following God. He feels like this is it, that it's all going to die with me. But look at God's response in verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he says, no, 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 Elijah, you don't understand. I'm doing something much bigger than you can imagine. You are not the only one. I have called out 7,000 men. And I think Paul is saying that if there was ever a time God... Um, had enough reason to reject his people, it would have been in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 19. 
They'd abandoned him, tore down the altars, following after another God. He had all the reason in the world then to reject his people. He says he didn't. Well, he gives one last reason, and it builds upon that idea of what he was doing with Elijah in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So they weren't chosen because they had more faith, because they were more resilient, before they were braver. He says it was only by grace, not by works. And then verse 7, but what then? Israel has failed to obtain what it is seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them the spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So it's because Israel, not all but most, hardened their hearts. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. So because of their rebellion and their lack of faith, Israel is put under judgment. And in many ways, they still sit under that judgment today. And God could have completely turned their backs on them for their selfishness, for their evil desires. But in the midst of this, God was doing something. And he talks about the table. It's a table of blessing, but it only ensnared them. The cornerstone was given, but it only became a stumbling block. So God turns them over to the rebellion and their lack of faith. And God could have left them there. He had every right to leave them in that place, but notice what he was doing. He was calling out a remnant. Just like he did back with Elijah, he says, so I am doing today. And so this idea of remnant, it's so interesting. It's something that you see God doing over and over again, that God often uses the minority, not the masses. In fact, God most often uses a small group to carry out his plans. And I think it's because then he receives the credit and the glory. So let me give you just a couple of kind of Points or kind of ideas of this idea of a remnant. One was very common in Ruth chapter 2. If you owned land and you would go into harvest, you were to leave a remnant that would provide for the poor that would come in. Leviticus 7, the Passover meal, you were not to consume all of it. Part of it was to be set aside. Genesis 6. God judges the entire world, and he had every right to kill every single human on the planet. What does he do? He calls out a man named Noah and his family. Genesis 19, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, but he calls out and he saves Lot's family. You can look at Ezra 9, where Israel is sent into captivity in Babylon. Not everybody is saved. But he brings out and he saves a remnant. One of my favorite stories in Judges 7, you got a man named Gideon. He's got an army of 30,000 men, but God dwindles it down to only 300.
hundred disciples. Jesus is followed by thousands of people. He calls out 12 men among them. So God often uses small groups of people to carry out his plans because he receives the glory and the credit. So Paul says, has God turned his back on his people? He says, no. Look at myself. Look at God's electing love. Look at Elijah. And look at how God is always using the minority, not the masses. He says, all of these, they're all evidences that God has not, will not, and cannot reject His people. But then the question is, why are so many, why are so many Jews rejecting the Messiah? This is a question I think many of us are still wondering today with all the advantages they have. Until one of the saddest, this is if you ever get to go over and inter Israel in the Holy Land. It's a magnificent place. But there are people, it seems like they are so close Yet they are so far. I mean, they were God's chosen people. They have His laws given to them. They have the patriarchs. I mean, their family trees run back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The warnings of the prophets. Yet why are so many refusing to trust in the Messiah? So Paul's answer, the second section, the rejection, the temporary rejection of the Jews. Look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So he says, so the question he's asking is that since they have stumbled, have they fallen so far that they're without hope? Look at his answer. By no means. So once again, he says, absolutely not, because God is doing something, and notice what that is. Rather, through their trespass, salvation comes to, has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So because of Israel's refusal to believe, God then takes the salvation to the Gentiles. Now one of the questions might be, what happened if all the Jews had believed? I don't know. Church would probably look very different. But that was not what was happening. God knew this was the plan But notice that salvation offered to the Gentiles was intended to do something. It was to make them jealous. Now, I had one time in my life, I can remember being very jealous. Marla tells me I'm rewriting history. We're dating. We're in high school, and she went on a mission trip and left me all alone. She comes back, and I'm waiting there to pick her up. And I notice a group comes out, and there's this group of girls, and there's this one guy I've never seen before. And all of a sudden, all the girls, including my girlfriend, is giving this guy hugs and telling him it was great to get to know you and all this stuff. Oh, we're all going to get together. And something happened in me. I really can't explain what it was. I just knew I hated him. But this idea of jealousy, it's it's a little bit different. It's this idea, it means to provoke to zeal. To provoke to zeal, it's to create a desire in someone. Because from that point on, there wasn't anything that guy was going to do that was going to take my place. I can promise you that. But it'd be like this. Let's, let's say my kids, uh, I'm going to save up because they're getting into soccer. It's about that time. I'll use that. Say they come out with this brand new soccer ball. I don't know. Maybe you can do things ordinary soccer balls can't do. 
And I used to, oh, so I'll switch at this time. I, I save up. Man, I do some extra things. Man, I go without some things to save up my money to buy Marcus this soccer ball. Took me a while. I finally get it. I give it to him. And son, here's this soccer ball. Man, it'll do things you're... You can't even imagine. It is all yours uh, for you to enjoy. And he says, well, thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. Days go on. Weeks go by. And all of a sudden, I never see him even using that ball. Going one day, and I find it way up underneath his bed. And I begin thinking, well, he doesn't appreciate that. So Ophi comes to me. He says, Dad, I'm going to go out and play soccer. Can I use Marcus's ball? Well, sure. I mean, he doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't want it. Yeah, you can go out and enjoy it, have fun. You're going to be amazed. What do you think is the first thing that's going to happen when he sees his sister out in the yard playing with that ball? All of a sudden, that ball is his, and he wants it more than anything else. And so what's happening is God offers salvation to the Jews, who a majority rejects. God offers salvation to the Gentiles. When they begin believing, coming to Christ in faith, instead of casting the Jews aside, God's desire is that it would provoke them to want what the Gentiles have. Because look at verse 12. Now, if their trespasses mean riches to the world, their rejection became riches to the world, to the Gentiles. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more? Will their full inclusion mean? So the Gentiles win because of Israelites' rejection. But what is even better is if they both win. So what's better is not that my son gets jealous and mad at his sister and starts yelling, that's my ball. The best thing that happens is I look out and I see them both enjoying it and actually getting along. He says that is what is better. So then he, though, gives a caution to the Gentiles. He says, don't get ahead of yourself. Because look at verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, just to be clear. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So first of all, he gives them two words of caution. The first one here is have a heart for your brothers and sisters that are Israelites. That what is better is not that more and more Gentiles come to faith, even though that's great. It's that more and more Gentiles and more and more Jews would come together. And then he's going to go into some word pictures to give the second warning. Beginning in verse 16. For if the dough offered as first fruits is holy. So the first part is given. That was set aside. So that the whole lump. And if the root is holy. So are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off. And you. The Gentiles. Although were a wild olive shoot. Were grafted in among the others. And now share in the nourishing root. Of the olive tree. But here's the second caution. 18. Do not be arrogant. Toward the branches. If you are remember. It is not you. Who support the root. But the root. 
that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So this was a common agricultural illustration where you take the trunk or the root of a tree and you would cut that and you would take a branch from another tree and cut it, put them together, wrap them together. And over time, the trunk would accept the branch and it would then begin bearing fruit. He says, you Gentiles, you were the wild branches. You were outside the covenant. But through faith, you were grafted into the tree. But the unbelieving Jews, the branches that were originally a part of that through the covenant, were cut off for unbelief. And then notice how stern his warning is. Do not become proud or arrogant. He says, if God would not spare the natural branches, what makes you think he would spare you? So Paul tells them those what's going to happen to those that have been grafted and what they should be doing. And it's in verse 22. Note, then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. He's talking about judgment. But God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And if you've been following uh, even loosely at all, You've heard me talk a lot about grace, and I've said, it's not up to you. There's nothing you're doing in this thing. You should be going, oh, wait, read that again, Mark. It says, I need to continue in his kindness. Paul is absolutely right. Here's what we have to understand. Paul is not talking about a person losing their salvation. That would go against all that Paul is saying in all the other places. He tells us Christ will not lose a single one that comes to him. I could spend a lot of morning uh, fleshing that out, talking about what that might look like. But for time's sake, I want to talk about what it means to continue in his kindness. So you need to write this down. Here it is. Kindness in God. What is that? The kindness in God is anything and everything. God has done and will do to give you himself. That is the the kindness of God. It's anything and everything that God will do and will do to bring you, to give you himself. That is God's kindness. And the ultimate expression of God's kindness is seen at the cross. So we are to continue in that kindness. So what is Paul meaning? It means to continue to trust in Him for all that you need for today and for all eternity. We stay in God's kindness by believing that He surrounds us and He upholds us all of the time. It's trusting that He is working all things to our good. Believing that if He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this is how you stay in God's kindness is to continue to believe and trust. And I've said this many times. You know, the most important thing is not 
that you believed back when you were six years old or you were 13 or you were 26. Yes, that's important. What is even more important is are you believing and trusting today? Because you're believing and trusting today, that didn't mean anything back then. Are you believing and trusting in this moment, sitting right here today? And the great news is that no one is out of the reach of God's kindness. So we keep trusting. We keep believing that God is working all things to our good. That He is in this for us. That He will bring us to completion and present us blameless. And then look at verse 23 and 24. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if they were cut from what is, na- is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, that's contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be brought back in and grafted into their own olive tree. So he says there's hope for unbelieving Gentiles and there's hope for unbelieving Jews. One is only broken off by unbelief and one is only grafted in by faith alone and there is hope for all of them. So I want to go back and we're going to pick up in verse 25 next week. I want to go back to the idea of thinking, man, this idea of Israel, we're so far removed from it in a different time, a different place. How is this helpful for me when I have all of these other problems that seem so different than what they had? Well, I want to give you two. The first thing I was reminded of this week is this passage to remind us of the danger of being so close yet so far. They had all the advantages that anyone could ask for. They were so close. They grew up knowing God's word, hearing the stories from their grandparents and great-grandparents, the writings of the prophets, a, a heritage like you and I can never imagine. Yet too many have missed out. They are yet so far. So the one thing is to remember that we have so many advantages today. Do not neglect them. Do not take advantage of them. We have so many blessings even today. We have God's word. We have the freedom to gather together and to worship and to serve one another. Not to take these advantage, not to take advantage of those things. But here's the second one. This passage should shout back to us about the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God. To continue in God's kindness. Because there is not a situation that you have gone through or that you will go through that God is not already aware of. And there is a promise from God for us to hold on to for whatever we might be facing. I promise you, no matter the problem, there is a promise to trust in. You fight hard to continue in God's kindness. Remind yourself of God's goodness toward His people in all times. And you pray that you will continue to believe. And so, I thought long and hard about this, and I've talked myself in and out of it quite a few times. And um, 
Why not? I'm ahead of time. One more point of application. Um, it's this idea that the gospel went to the Gentiles, and it wasn't just that they would receive. It was so that others would look at them, and they would actually become jealous. They would be provoked to zeal. Well, if you're sitting here this morning, you are a believer. I want you to know you are actually a part of God's remnant today. We will not always be here, but until Christ returns, God will always be preserving a remnant. And the blessing is you are now a part of that if you believe. And when people know that about us, they should see a love for Jesus and a love for his people that is different than they see any other time. Especially here. People should be able to walk through these doors and they should just almost sense something different. I mean, these people, I mean, there's a genuine love for Jesus. I mean, they should see that we have a love for each other in a way that maybe they don't get to experience in other ways. That God uses his people to make others jealous, to create a zeal. But it should go far beyond this place. And we are in all kinds of different contexts. And I'm wondering, are we creating a curiosity in people or are we repelling them? So I've got a friend um, that I help from time to time. I'll do some side jobs with him. And uh, Jason's here this morning. He actually introduced me to this friend that's uh, not a believer. And um, Valley Parks Cards. And man, it's really been great for me because I get to hang around with a group of people that I wouldn't normally associate with. A lot of people going through difficult times in life, many unbelievers, and uh, you get to kind of stand around for a few hours and have some interesting conversations. I got a call this week, and he said, hey, I'm looking for some help in an event, but this is what he said from an unbeliever. He said, you need to know this is an event that are all Christians, and you will not make any money. So I said, well, I wish I could, but I can't. I'm busy that night. So a friend of mine went and worked it. I saw him last night, and I said, hey, how'd it go? He said, well, I was there from 4 to 10, parked about 40 or 50 cars, and I made $7. And I got to thinking, here is a man that is not a believer, and his view of Christians, are they, the, they are the least generous people in the world. And he is being repelled instead of made curious. And so more and more now, man, I want to get to know this guy to say, listen, on behalf of everybody you've met that's professing, I apologize I promise you, not everyone is like that. So I want you to know God wants to use you to make others thirsty for what we have in Christ. May we create a curiosity in people and not repel them. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.